Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. All right, well, welcome back to Michael and Us, everyone. I'm Luke Savage. With me, as always, Will Sloan. And before we get to the episode, just a small request from your humble podcasters to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. We've got some fresh reviews in uh, from the last time we made this request. First of all, amateur move to be responding to the haters, to the losers. I don't know what you're talking about. Haters, uh, five stars. The best politics podcast is about movies. Oh, I see what you mean. Three stars used to be good. Well, yeah, boo, <laughs> boo. You, you can't please them all. To be clear, I only knew about that because Luke told me. That's right. I pretend to be bulletproof, but I actually read every comment, every tweet, every DM. And look, folks, sometimes I cry. What can I say? Some of us are simply too famous to keep up with all of it. <laughs> but please do rate and review the show. We'd really appreciate it. I still don't really understand how it helps, but it has something to do with algorithms. Every time we ask, we get new ratings, new reviews, and it does seem to make the show more visible on podcast apps and things like that. So please do us a solid. We'd also be remiss if we forgot to mention the Michael and Us Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Your subscription gets you at minimum an extra episode every single week plus a lot of other bonus content we've got some cool stuff in the pipeline some interviews some bonus uh, solo episodes that kind of thing yeah some of the recent episodes have included nolan's oppenheimer robert altman's popeye and a recent tribute to the departing new yorker writer andy borowitz now, Will, we're in a new studio today, and I'm not sure if that will be evident to uh, everyone listening at home, but the vibes are, uh, are, are quite different. I'm feeling very, uh, very naked, very exposed where we are at the moment. Michael and us is kind of between co-working spaces at the moment. Uh, we are trying to find a new workable space that is not one of our apartments. Oh, sorry, I mean the Dalton McGinty headquarters <laughs> or the Gore Lieberman studio. Yeah, so we're actually uh, coming to you live from the Toronto Reference Live in scenic downtown Toronto and we're in something uh, that is called a study pod we're surrounded by glass we can see 360 degrees around us yeah there's people everywhere but uh, they can't hear a word we're saying it's kind of strange yeah what can I say we're just experimenting we're trying new things with the podcast we're trying to find uh, workable solutions uh, to our constant endless ceaseless podcast recording schedule uh, that isn't constantly you know kicking our significant others out of their rooms. <laughs> well, we'll move on from the plugs in a second, but I'd also be remiss not to mention the exciting new release from my co-host, Mr. Will Sloan over here. What have you just published? That's right. I can't believe we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet. Um, last summer, I was uh, sitting in a hotel room. I was in Michigan. I think I had just got off the phone with Luke telling him how we needed to do an episode on The Flash. Will insists that this happened. He was telling me about this recently you know the the fateful phone call where he uh, against my explicit objections uh, made the case to go see it, the it flash trou it troubles me because i was filibustering i was on this phone in a you know the parking lot of a holiday inn just on and on and on talking about how it connected various threads of discussions that we'd had before and luke here doesn't remember anything of that performance uh, but anyway uh, after after that filibuster i went in for a little bit and uh, my significant other was out and I had um, you know an hour to kill or something and I was uh, struck by a demon telling me wouldn't it be funny to put out a call for submissions 
for a Three Stooges zine. So in 15 minutes, I whipped up a kind of like call for submissions, <laughs> the Journal of Stoogeological Studies, because it was kind of an experiment of like, okay, we have a certain amount of Twitter followers here. <laughs> what would happen if I just put out that call for submissions? And here we are six months later, seven months later, and the finished product is available to the world. It's called the Journal of Stoogeological Studies, an unauthorized Three Stooges fanzine. It has contributions from all sorts of people. There are articles about all factors of stooge life, uh, <laughs> stuff about everything from the set design of the Columbia shorts to two separate articles about Joe Besser's ignominious tenure as third stooge. Two different comic strips about Ted Healy. Well, there's my personal favorite, which is that Will actually uh, solicited a submission from a filmmaker who we've uh, discussed uh, at least twice on this podcast. We've done at least two of his films. That would be Mr. Guy Madden, one of our favorite uh, Canadian filmmakers. Fuck, one of our mo- one of our favorite filmmakers. Will and Guy Madden sat down, put their heads together, and uh, talked about Mo Curley and Larry. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's such an honor because Guy Madden, in addition to being you know one of the great Canadian Canadian artist incorporates the Three Stooges into a lot of his collage work. So he was kind enough having just returned from finishing his most recent film to uh, sit with me on Zoom for a little while and just have a powwow about the Stooges. So one of the things I like about this zine is it feels very, you know, democratic to me. It's as democratic as I could make it. There are wonderful submissions by people who uh, have never published before. There are submissions by veteran writers. Uh, There's an interview with Guy Madden. There's an interview with Drew Friedman, a great artist. Uh, There's an interview with the son of one of the Three Stooges regular supporting players, uh, Emil Sitka. So I think uh, the, the compliment that I've gotten most regularly is people think it, it's more substantial than people expected it to be. Well, I for one am happy to see the Stooges finally taken out of the ivory tower, given back to the people where they belong. So it is available on Amazon. The cost is as low as it can be because everybody volunteered their time. So it is a non-profit venture. If you're an American, you can get it for less than five bucks. And uh, pretty soon Soon a PDF will be available for free if you don't want to give Lord Bezos that five bucks. You can't do this. You cannot do this. There's nothing we can't do. It's real. Burn it. Cleric, I can only hope one day to be as uncompromising as you. You're a family man. Yes, sir, a boy and a girl. Well, we talk about a lot of dumb stuff on this show. You know, we talk about kitsch documentaries and uh, bird-brained liberal movies, that kind of thing. Uh, So we thought it was time to do something a little bit more, you know, cerebral, something that's fun, but, you know, also is a bit of a message and, you know, makes the point, makes you think. Anyway, we couldn't find anything like that. Uh, So we watched the 2002 film Equilibrium by Kurt Vimmer. This is... Probably one of the worst things, one of the dumbest things we've ever watched, uh, but I had a lot of fun watching it. It is eminently watchable in its stupidity. And uh, if you don't know what this movie is, 
you probably know one of the phrases that it popularized. That would be a gun kata, which uh, didn't feature quite as prominently in the movie uh, as I was hoping, and which seems to be a sort of dystopian future martial art that mostly involves standing in one place. Uh, Imagine if you took the martial arts, which are, you know, feet and hands, and you combine them with guns, (laughs) then you would have gun kata. And I was delighted to discover, I assumed it had its roots somewhere else, but no, uh, Mr. Kurt Wimmer himself is credited as the co-creator of Gun Kata. And I intend to devote the rest of my life to becoming an expert in the art of Gun Kata. Yeah, it's the best kind of martial art, which is one that's been completely stripped of any art to speak of. Uh, There's a scene where it's being explained, and it actually just seems to be geometry. Whenever we see Christian Bale as John Preston, uh, the star of this movie, doing it, he's really just standing in one place. And somehow, yeah, Gun Kata, the main innovation seems to be uh, pointing guns at various people you're trying to shoot, but doing so more quickly than would normally be possible using the power of geometry. But yes, geometry is emphasized. And I was reminded that Bruce Lee in creating Jeet Kune Do, his style, sought to synthesize all styles because he said rehearsed routines, you know, the katas and that sort of thing do not hold up in a street fight. You know, be water, my friend. And, you know, Jeet Kune Do is often thought of as a forerunner of modern-day mixed martial arts, which incorporates, you know, all sorts of styles. Um, And Kurt Wimmer looked at that and said, au contraire, actually what you need are more rehearsed routines. Uh, You need it to be completely rigorous. And also (laughs) to add guns. Which, you know, it's funny, if you look at Bruce Lee's movies, they're always coming up with elaborate explanations for why there can't be guns in that universe. You know, he goes to Han's Island and it's like, let's bring guns. And they say, no, 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 he doesn't allow guns on the island. But Kurt Wimmer said, what if, what if they're holding guns while they're doing the kung fu? (laughs) But you know, you just said that you found this movie one of the worst things we've ever seen. And maybe from some angles it is, but from other angles, it's a pure delight. It's an amazing movie. Like, you look at it and you think, how did this pass a script reader? The- it's set in a, a terrifying future where feelings are illegal. It's like one of the stupidest, just one of the least plausible premises for a movie. I think it's executed reasonably well. Yeah, I agree. G- given how stupid it is but it's like what if you made the whole plane out of the bad idea you know like at what at what point can you separate competent enough execution from just the sheer stupidity of what it's expressing well the movie is accidentally pretty funny because you know if it had been a comedy it might have been slightly better even if the premise still wouldn't have worked and would still have had all the same flaws but the fact that this movie seems to be entirely self-serious from start to finish is one of the things that adds most to its uncanny strangeness and which actually makes it funnier than if it had, if it was trying to be a comedy. So again, this the plot of this movie, the premise of this movie is, uh, yeah, it's uh, set in a totalitarian future in a sort of authoritarian city-state called Libria. The year 2072 specifically, after the Third World War, nuclear annihilation has destroyed much of the world and those who remain realize that the common denominator of much conflict the common denominator indeed of much strife forget about war just unpleasantness in general 
is emotion. <laughs> and and maybe the only way to save society is to eliminate emotion. The, the, the plot of this movie is basically like something that a kind of precocious 11th grader would come up with and submit as like, you know, their, their end of year English project after they'd read, I don't know, Ayn Rand's anthem, half of 1984, and, you know, I don't know, a little bit of Brave New World. Everything about this movie is sort of pieced together from longstanding tropes of dystopian science fiction, mostly taken from things that are much better. I will say this movie's probably better and smarter than Ayn Rand's anthem. I don't know if you ever read that, her first novella, but it fucking sucks. No, would you believe I've never actually read an Ayn Rand book? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, that's the easiest one to read because it's only about 40 or 50 pages or something. The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are a fucking slog. I'm convinced that only like a few hundred people can have ever read them. They're fucking terrible. The plot of Anthem, since we're on the subject and since it'll probably never come up again in conversation between the two of us, the plot of that one is that it's a dystopian society where there's some kind of like guardian council or something that suppresses innovation. So they, 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 they suppress individuality by, you know, banning, uh, I don't know, technology, like new technology. And the main character, I don't know, invents a light bulb or something. And then the council of elders tells him, uh, no, you can't be doing that. Well, I hate to digress so and much. And it's a metaphor for how in, you know, America during the New Deal, they, they, they put people who invented things in prison because of communism. Hate to digress, but have you ever seen the you know 1940s hollywood version of the fountainhead it stars gary cooper and it's directed by king vidor no but we should probably watch that and we should also watch the uh, atlas shrug that's like yeah. the the three-part one made in the 2010s where the budget like was cut in half basically and every single one movie. has a new cast different cast yeah the fountainhead movie which is really my only extended experience with ayn rand and i'm sure is accurate to the book like i kind of love the movie it's really entertaining um, and it's also like just the stupidest thing ever it's like Howard Rourke he's this awesome architect and the chief antagonist is a critic who keeps giving him <laughs> bad reviews because he's he he's jealous uh, and then the big third act twist is that when the small minded people who want to put one of his designs into practice are compromising it too much and it's like low income housing or something like it's an apartment block he blows it up like he does a terrorist attack on it out of artistic principle <laughs> and and that's supposed to be good uh i don't know i i love the movie i think it's really fun um but anyway getting back to equilibrium you may be asking what would be the popular basis for this government because look let's face it most of us like emotions in small doses at least in fact i would say most industries are built around the cultivation of positive emotions most political regimes whether they're democratic or authoritarian have a place for emotion in systems of governance systems of living in societies where you know there's a certain level of individual freedom individual expression emotional and otherwise is part and parcel of that but the same is true of oppressive and authoritarian societies right you want to tell me that you know like the third reich didn't have an emotional dimension that as a regime emotion wasn't absolutely central like cultivated uh, collectively expressed emotion well see, mass th- politics this is, this is the problem because we all know what the third reich led to and in this movie which i mean the flag of this country where it's set in is basically the swastika but with a couple of the lines removed we see uh, some stock footage that's projected against the walls of stalin hitler 
Hitler and basically Saddam Hussein, I think, appears. Saddam Hussein, you know, uh, all, all the bad guys. And it, <laughs> the narration was saying, you know, what unites all of these failed experiments is is emotion. So what if what if you had the Nazi regime, but without the emotion? Right, the movie does try to explain itself that way. But I think the basic point here still holds. I mean, there's this there's still the same flaw in the premise, which is, you know, most authoritarian regimes, right, they do need emotion to at least come about. You want to you want to like a regime, you want to <laughs> well, even, even if a regime isn't popular, right, which like most authoritarian regimes, especially if they've been in place for a long time, like there's not a popular majority in favor of them. But that's not to say they don't have particular, you know, constituencies that are holding them together. I mean, honestly, one of the smartest criticisms of Orwell's dystopia in 1984 was made by by the Polish Marxist historian Isaac Deutscher, who pointed out that, you know, in 1984, it's not actually clear, like, what the party is or what holds it together. Like, ideologies are usually self-interested to the people that hold them in some way. And in 1984, the party is just this kind of disembodied whole. Like, power is just sort of an end in itself or the, or the pursuit suit of power. Now, if that criticism applies to 1984, which is a much better imagined world than this is, then, you know, it applies to this in spades. I mean, very little about this premise works at all. Of course, the way emotion is uh, suppressed is that everyone has to take a drug called, uh, what is it, Prosium 2. Prosium 2. Now, what does that remind you of? Is there a drug from around this time (laughs) that there was a lot of sort of moral panic around that that reminds you of? I assume you dream, Preston. I'll do what I can to see they go easy on you. We both know they never go easy. Then I'm sorry. No, you're not. You don't even know the meaning. It's just a vestigial word for a feeling you've never felt. Don't you see, Preston? It's gone. Everything that makes us what we are, traded away. There's no war. No murder. What is it you think we do? No. So, Libria is governed by a body that's called the Tetragrammaton Council. There's a big brother figure called Father, who just sort of appears on screen everywhere. Honestly, It is a lot like that film version of 1984 we watched. And I guess this is true of the novel as well, where where like everything that's on TV is basically just Big Brother doing propaganda. Like that's what entertainment is. There's a scene where Christian Bale goes home to his son and his son is just like watching just like the father channel all day and 24 hour programming of a guy saying that it's really dope and chill to not feel things and, you know, take your prosium too, kids. Did you ever see that Ricky Gervais movie, The Invention of Lying? I never got around to that one because one of the premises of the film is you know it takes place in an alternate timeline where no one has ever lied which means that fiction hasn't been created because fiction is a lie and so the thing that everyone watches on tv in that movie is a character played by christopher guest who's just reading history from a book anyway it didn't really ring true in that movie and it doesn't ring true here either because even if you were suppressing all emotion like how could you suppress boredom like presumably people are watching things on tv to stave 
wave off boredom. That's one emotion you really can't escape. Yeah, now it does seem like the prosium solution to the problem of emotion is limited in its ability to control people because the place where Christian Bale works and also where uh, Sean Bean, who briefly appears in the movie and as in many of his appearances, uh, gets killed off pretty quickly. They're part of a sort of, I don't know, Praetorian guard of the Tetragrammaton Council or whatever. Christian Bale is what's known as a Grammaton cleric, which to me sounds like a mini boss from Elden Ring. But the job of the Grammaton clerics is to go out and eliminate the sole source of man's inhumanity to man, his ability to feel. And so they basically- We see you have emotions hiding in the attic. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty much what- is, so, so they- That is pretty much what it is. They they go out and they and they find the, the sense offenders who- it turns out are actually a sort of underground there's like there's like an underground like the feelings resistance movement right um, and so they're constantly like finding you know hidden compartments in these apartments where they find the Mona Lisa yeah, 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 they yeah, find yeah. Sean Bean when he dies Sean Bean has decided to leave behind this ideology and he dies because he refuses to put down his book of Yeats poetry and it's as if Kurt Wimmer googled the most artistic art ever and filled every frame with it but it's it's crazy like they break into this apartment at the beginning and they like you know look under the floorboards and yeah they literally find the Mona Lisa and then Christian Bale is just like burn it you mentioned uh, this film is kind of like a worse version of Children of Men. Definitely another dystopian story. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought about this movie while we were watching Children of Men. Because you'll recall there's that scene at the Battersea power station where the Danny Houston character is surrounded by all these artifacts of 20th century art and culture. Picasso's Guernica, uh, the pig from... Michael, the, Michelangelo's yeah, David. Pre-20th century, as the case may be. And in that movie, the implication is that these things have basically become meaningless because they been cut off from history they've also been cut off from their audience there's no dialogue with either the public or history whereas this movie would posit that actually a lot of this art has an inherent power so there's a scene not to get too far ahead of ourselves where christian bale having stopped taking his prosium or whatever it is <laughs> he's listening to beethoven's ninth symphony and you know a single tear rolls down his cheek or i mean there's that scene also yeah the first one with the mona lisa where he's gazing at the face and you know one wonders in a society like this what would the mona lisa mean if anything i think sean bean also sees the mona lisa and i feel like there's almost an implication that like somehow just seeing the, the, the very ambivalent expression on the Mona Lisa's face like stirs something in him. And then he's like, okay, well, I have to read this Yeats poetry. And again, having absolutely no context for William Butler Yeats, this is just, there's no turning back from this in some way. And, you know, I am worried we've already exceeded our quota for the year of bringing up that scene from Children of Men, but it is so useful. It is so applicable to so many things. And you're absolutely right. There's a deep awareness in that scene of what happens when works of art have been, you know, desacralized, when they've been turned into pure commodities, when they're just totems that someone owns. And this movie shows us many things to which that applies, but it doesn't really have the same awareness about what that would mean. As Will says, just finding these decontextualized objects, like seeing the Mona Lisa without having any context for what the Mona Lisa is, for this film to make sense, these objects have to be imbued with some kind of authentic aura that is not connected to any kind of, you know, 
cultural intercourse or tradition or anything like that. And truth be told, I don't think that really makes any sense. I think culture is by its very nature a process of exchange. It's dialogical. It's discursive. You can't just go through your life, you know, taking your prosium and watching the father on his 24-hour news channel. Then one day you pick up the Mona Lisa and you're never the same again. I don't think it would really work that way. One of the many problems with this movie. Nevertheless, the Sean Bean character is stirred. So uh, take that. (laughs) Uh, Christian Bale cold-bloodedly kills him because that is his job. And uh, Christian Bale, we learn, has a bit of a tragic back story of his own his wife was taken by the sense police because she too was an emotional person she stopped taking her medication it is a little confusing like how does how does sex work in this world like they've preserved the nuclear family it seems like like the heterosexual nuclear family still exists it does seem like it's not actually possible to abolish emotion because as much as christian bale's character tries to suppress his sadness at the fact that his wife has been taken you know they they have procreated they have a son together and it does seem to be lingering with him even though he doesn't show that all he shows to the world is this stoic exterior and speaking of which he still lives with his son is their relationship strictly unsentimental are they strictly together as roommates at this point like presumably they would care about each other on some level for this domestic arrangement to continue it is very strange really because as the first scene with the son establishes like everyone's highest loyalty or really their only loyalty is to the state his son very quickly is revealed to be like a rat you know like he walks in on his dad uh his, you know christian bale drops his prosium bottle and it breaks on the floor and then his son very coldly instructs him to make sure he stops by the prosium store on the way to work or whatever and gets a replacement but christian bale arrests a sense offender played by emily watson and while interrogating her they have some of the movie's smartest dialogue you know some of the stuff that really makes you think. I live to safeguard the continuity of this great society, to serve Libya. It's circular. You exist to continue your existence. What's the point? What's the point of your existence? To feel. Because you've never done it, you can never know it. But it's as vital as breath. And without it, without love, without anger, Without sorrow, breath is just a clock ticking. Man, isn't feeling what it's all about? And I'm just loving this, like the straw man this movie sets up of, you know, some people might think that it's important to suppress emotions to make society continue. But have you ever considered that emotions are what society should be about? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure Kurt Wimmer understands what dystopian sci-fi is about because usually in the fictional worlds that dystopian sci-fi writers create, usually the suppression works as, you know, a commentary on something. And what is this movie? What is Equilibrium a commentary on? It's really sticking it to the people who are saying, oh, you know, we could abolish war if we abolished emotion. Let's do that, shall we? I think probably he had a conversation with somebody in his dorm 20 years ago where somebody postulated this thesis and it was very quickly refuted. But nevertheless, that argument stuck with him forever. 
Uh, while we're nitpicking things, a few things that I <laughs> wrote in my notes. Obviously, art is illegal, pictorial art, that is, but there is still architecture. There's still also fashion. You know, these guys wear these, like, really cool John Woo <laughs> Matrix coats. Yeah, a lot of Matrix ripoff stuff in this movie. And, like, presumably, people make fashion choices because they think it looks cool. Doesn't architecture evoke emotion, too? Architecture is an art. Well, I guess all the architecture, though, is sort of supposed to be, like, brutal. It's sort of like, yeah, like 30s fascist brutalism kind of thing. That evokes emotion. I don't know. No, I guess I guess you're right. I mean, like no Frank Gehry art. I get it. But yeah, I don't know. I guess it, it does speak to uh, the problem with this movie, the fundamental problem with its premise that we've already identified, which is that the regime it's most drawing on, which I think it's fair to say is the Third Reich. You can pluck that architecture or something like it. You can pluck the brutalism from the 1930s. But the fact is, you know, Nazi Germany was wasn't trying to be an emotionless society. Like the brutalism wasn't necessarily meant to be sort of cold and unfeeling. It was actually supposed to evoke a kind of Baroque grandiosity. And it's hard to see why a society where no one has emotion would would need or want to do that. So further questions. We see that Christian Bale has an absolutely Spartan apartment. It's about time someone took, took this movie down a peg, wouldn't you say? Christian Bale has an absolutely Spartan apartment, up to and including the fact that he doesn't have a blanket on is bad. He just kind of sleeps in a fetal position, <laughs> uncovered. The windows have like a film on them. Right, okay. <laughs> this is one of my favorite scenes where when he stops taking his prosium, he's shocked by like the sunlight and he like peels off the foam from his window and is overwhelmed by the sunrise and the cityscape. And I don't know. He can go outside. He's yeah, seen a like, sunrise before. But are you are you just not allowed to see a cityscape from a certain angle in this society? He doesn't have a blanket, so does the pill prevent him from feeling cold? <laughs> and, for, and further to that point, like let's say there's a snowstorm or a blizzard. Let's say there's a blizzard that causes a big traffic jam. Like surely even with all the prosium in the world, you're going to be driving your car, you're late for work, and you're going to think, God damn it, I'm not happy about being late for work. Yeah, we need to submit a complaint to the Tetragrammaton Council. This is what I mean when I say that the whole plane was built out of the stupid idea. <laughs> There's like not a single square inch of this movie that isn't stupid. And I love it. So he breaks his Prosium 2 capsule. He goes to get a new vial at the, uh, the Prosium 2 factory. It seems to have been shut down for repairs. It seems maybe it's been, you know, bombed or sabotaged by, you know, the feelings underground <laughs> or whatever. He then gets picked up by... By a hotshot new cleric named Andrew Brandt. This is another character who kind of like thwarts the movie's own premise in many ways because this guy is just expressing emotion all the time. He has emotion in every scene. Like being ambitious is an emotion. That's he's, right. He's totally gleeful at the idea of like, People taking their prosium at the idea that he's going to expose Christian Bale, that he's going to rise on the career ladder and be the most alpha grammaton cleric of them all. That's right. He's played by Ty Diggs and frequently throughout the movie, he like grins. Yeah, he's smiling all the time. And he's always being sort of <laughs> smug and cocky next to Christian Bale. And I'm sorry, Kurt Wimmer did a very bad job directing this movie. <laughs> But so, you know, freed from his prosium too, you know, he lies to his son, he lies to uh, Brant, says that he's taken his prosium too. He then starts uh, having a feeling as they do another one of these raids. And as his little retinue of feelings police, you know, deals with some resistance fighters in another room, he's standing by to, you know, execute a bunch more where he is. And he says, go, 
get out of here, run. Uh, he then uses Gunkata to kill some of his security and, and guys. Gunkata, I believe that this is only taught to the most elite of the elite sense police. Oh, that's right. right. You can't just teach anyone Gunkata. They're like Jedi. They probably like have to go to like the Gunkata Institute from a young age. Yeah, and the action scenes are really cool in this movie. They're kind of like Johnny Toe action scenes where it's just people like standing in these really exaggerated positions, just firing statically. And then, you know, much is done with the editing. Okay, the, the gun counter. There are so many scenes in this movie where like Christian Bale will walk into a room and there will be 20 guards or something who come at him. And then just through, he, he does like Steven Seagal style moves where he just waves his hands a little bit and he just gets every single one of them. Yeah, and a lot like Steven Seagal, you know, he typically doesn't move. He typically remains standing in one spot, you know, so he doesn't exert himself too much. Right, because, you know, this is this is gun kata. It, the explanation for how he's able to, you know, once they just introduce the fact that it's geometry, they feel no ne- further need to explain that. Yeah, it's science. What yeah. do you want? <laughs> they don't show how, you know, how he uses science and geometry in each individual fight to conquer. No, it's just like, just, just trust us. In this flurry of emotion, he's doing, you know, it's 45 degrees here, 30 degrees there, etc., etc. So he's he's nearly exposed in this scene because he leads the, uh, the Feelings Underground members who he's trying to rescue uh, into a room where there's a bunch of you know, stormtroopers waiting or whatever. Bront decides to execute them all. Christian Bale's got to maintain his composure. Uh, although he does do something uh, crucial in this scene, which is that he hands his gun to Bront, which will be an important detail for later in the movie. Hate to interrupt, but I was just wondering, what is the class system in this society? Because like, <laughs> it seems to me that we basically have like three classes. There's there's most people, there's the proles, and then there's middle management, which is Christian Bale. Uh-huh. And, and then, then there's, there's the clerics and, yeah. the, and the tetragrammaton yeah, council it's, it's the pigs in animal farm that's at right the very top <laughs> yeah and like has removing emotion made it so that all because obviously removing emotion has had some positive impact on this society like the trains run on time here <laughs> the, we don't see any litter we don't see any pollution there hasn't been war in a long time so and therefore has emotion also gotten rid of like most class disparity so like most people are just working at computers now. Like, wh- wh- where are the convenience store clerks? Where, <laughs> well, where are the janitors? This this is at risk of being our most pedantic episode we've ever done, but this movie's so stupid, I don't really know how else to talk about it. You raise a good point. Another film that this is very derivative of that's a much better movie is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And the thing is, in that movie, it kind of does seem like everyone works for the state. Like, everybody is a bureaucrat of some kind, right down to that plumber that comes to, you know, fix his, uh, you know, his pipes or whatever. But so, you know, everyone's a bureaucrat in that society. And then just, you know, some of the bureaucrats have guns and those are the cops. And this movie kind of portrays the society the exact same way, but there's not a lot of world building here. It's not really clear, like, are we only seeing a sliver of, you know, society? Is the, Are we just basically seeing the Tetragrammaton Council and then the proles they're policing who are all hoarding priceless artworks from the 20th century and before? Anyway, moving on a little more in the plot, the next thing that causes our hero to have a feel is when they do another raid and uh, there's a bunch of like barking dogs in a pen. And then and then one of the henchmen is like, quick, arrest this puppy. <laughs> like, so hands Christian Bale this puppy and is like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to exterminate it. You know, they go and exterminate the rest of the dogs. And he's already off his meds at this point. That's right. And so while the rest of the guards are just killing dogs left and right, <laughs> he is feeling, oh my 
my God, not not these sweet little guys. Well, I will tell you, this is actually more plausible thinking about it than the scene with like Sean Bean and the, the fucking Yates book or like the Mona Lisa. Because the thing is, a puppy actually is like inherently like cute and innocent in a way that yeah. like you don't you don't stumble upon the Mona Lisa having no context for what it is or even what a painting is and be like, oh, wow, like... I'm having all the feels. Just a note on the world building. You mentioned that most of the inspiration for this movie's dystopia came from the Third Reich, but there's a little bit of the Soviet Union in here too. Specifically, there's a moment where, you know, the big brother figure on the TVs is saying words to the effect of, our society needs uniformity. It needs conformity. Words like that, which is what a certain kind of guy thinks of when he thinks of communism. Like, oh, it's you gotta be like a faceless guy in a big mob like if you were trying to sell this society what you would say is solidarity well yeah like everyone who runs this regime everyone like all of its ideologues they don't even seem to have the slogans of the party in 1984 they're not like you know freedom is slavery ignorance is strength they're not sort of saying well actually this is good there's a deeper kind of freedom that we're getting out of this all of their slogans are like it's good to be evil it's good to be bad suppress your true self and therein lies the true freedom but actually well you you know what i was struggling to come up with a, pol a political reading of this movie and there's a bit more plot to discuss but i think in what you've just said you've actually solved the movie for me i think i now wow, understand incredible. where this movie's coming from because we've been discussing this film hitherto as just a kind of arbitrary pastiche of different tropes from you know sci-fi dystopia and i think we've been struggling to come up with anything coherent it's yeah, hard we, to... we've been shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> as this episode has gone along it's 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 safe to say that this is one of our most cinema sins kind of episodes <laughs> i get it but you know the next scene i wanted to talk about is the scene where you know they do another raid or something he does he does liberate the puppy for those who are worried about the puppy's fate he sort of says no i must take the dog away for questioning or something takes the dog away drives him away in a car and i don't know is just like hey run free uh i think the dog escapes and then he gets accosted as a sense offender by some other feelings police you know, I'm actually wrong. I don't think the dog does get away because doesn't he try to hide it in the trunk? And then they ask to see his cleric's ID, which he's left in his coat in the trunk. So the dog doesn't get away, but then Christian Bale's Preston is able to use Gunkata once again and thus save the dog from... And Gunkata <laughs> truly is his get-out-of-jail-free card <laughs> yeah, every time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, the big finale of the movie where first he goes through a hallway of like 25 guards <laughs> and he, you know, Gunkata's them all in 30 seconds. Yeah, he goes to like what is supposed to be like the father office like what should be the most secure location in the entire city state and then he's just able to gun caught us like through like 50 guys and then he gets into the big bad <laughs> angus mcfaden the big bad's office and like four guards come at him and he gun caught us them even easier and then finally the big boss like raises yeah, a he, sword he, he gets to brant who's this ambitious you know young grammaton cleric who's trying to usurp him you get to ganon and ganon's big thing is well like instead of shooting stuff at you i'm just gonna wave a big Big sword and would you when would you believe it that's not as effective that's even less effective than guns yeah it, it just he, kills the guy if it was right so away. easy to get through 25 guys like <laughs> it'll be really hard to get through one i mean to be fair brant is supposed to know gun kata but i guess christian bale's character just has more like gun kata medichlorians or something we'll talk in a bit we'll flesh out the ending a little more in a little bit but there's there's another scene which i think is perhaps the key to understanding the movie i'm forgetting exactly where this fits in in the plot at very Various points he goes 
to uh, meet Emily Watson. He sort of interrogates her and she says stuff like, well, what if feelings were actually good instead of bad? And now he leaves with lots to think about. But you mentioned earlier, you alluded to the scene where he goes down into the basement of some house where there's like a little bunker where, you know, beneath the uniformity, there's a room full of stuff. It's the secret art shack. That's yeah. right. It's the, it's the room full of debauched objects where, yeah, there's like pinup girls from the 1950s. There's like a little like shitty thing that you'd get in like a Parisian uh, tourist shop of like like an Eiffel Tower keychain or something. Yeah, then there's he finds like as a single, which is kind of weird. Ah, the hit single from Ludwig van Beethoven, uh, the Ninth Symphony, first movement. <laughs> he puts that on. He, uh, the record player is this very old, it's like a his master's voice kind of thing. It's got a big gramophone. It's got one of those big horns where the sound comes out. And so I'm actually realizing that this is kind of this movie's version of the scene in Children of Men. Exactly. Because Exactly, yeah. Because the objects here are a pastiche of things from different eras. I did like this about the movie that it put a bunch of things high and low and uh, yes. and in yes. between in there, which is what would actually happen. It's just, it's just a soup in there. Well, the Mona Lisa would have the same status in here as everything else. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would have the same status. It would be on the same level as the Eiffel Tower keychain. It's uh, it's but, like Netflix, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but this will I feel like is the key to understanding the movie and where it's coming from. This movie did come out in 2002, but it is, I think, a very 1990s movie in its outlook. You know, right down to the fact that it seems to be piggybacking on the sort of minor moral panic about kids taking Prozac and stuff like that. You know, in the 1990s, right, one of the big bogeymen, one of the stock cultural bogeymen was the idea of sort of conformity and anything that, you know, doesn't let you be yourself. And how do you be yourself? Well, in the 19th and 20th centuries, lots of people attempted grand utopian answers to that question. How do we let people be themselves while we construct a whole new kind of society where people will be free in a way that they've never been before? And, you know, there was a libertarian socialist idea of that. And then on the other side, there was, you know, the fascist answer. And the only man standing at the end of the 20th century is our good old friend, neoliberalism. And what is its answer to this question? It's, well, people can express themselves through stuff. And so that is, I think, the key to understanding this movie. What are its politics? Where is it coming from? It's coming from a place where the scariest possible future that anyone could imagine is one where commodities, which are the source of all expression and all feeling, are banned. You can't express yourself through Pepsi. You can't express yourself through your Honda Civic or whatever it is. We've talked endlessly on this show about how in the 1990s, the horizons of future possibility were kind of radically retrenched and pulled back. So people People can no longer envision progress in any meaningful sense. But the thing is, that quality about the 1990s applies in the other direction as well. Even the dystopias are more conservative. Like they can't even imagine real fascism anymore. So instead they imagine a world where feelings have been made illegal and there are sense police who go around to stop you listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or owning subversive objects like pictures of 50s pinup girls who are fully clothed and keychains of the Eiffel Tower. This man is guilty of consorting with sense offenders, of having relations with a female, of sense crime itself. Well, this will be anticlimactic after that typically virtuosic flourish by my esteemed co-host. <laughs> but look, Christian Bale kills the bad guys and he... He does so much gun kata here. He unleashes the emotion. And then it turns out that emotion was like a tide in this society just waiting for the dam to erupt. 
And the movie ends on an optimistic note with the hordes of crowds shooting up all of the palace guards and emotion filling the street. Maybe it's unformed. Uh, Maybe it'll lead to catastrophe, but by gum, it's all we have. Now, you may be wondering a little more about Gun Kata. Um, (laughs) I'm reading on the Wikipedia page for the film. Uh, there, there is, there is. Sorry to interrupt you, Will, but I'm, I have the same page in front of me, and hilariously, there is like you know just the standard things you see in the contents of a movie's Wikipedia page, you know, plot, cast, production, reception. But then there's a separate entry just for Gun Kata. Uh, the Angus McFadden character says in the film, "quote Through analysis of thousands of recorded gunfights, the cleric has determined that the geometric distribution of antagonists in any gun battle is a statistically predictable element." The gun kata treats the gun as a total weapon, each fluid position representing a maximum kill zone, inflicting maximum damage on the maximum number of opponents, while keeping the defender clear of the statistically traditional trajectories of return fire. By the rote mastery of this art, your firing efficiency will rise by no less than 120%. The difference of a 63% increased lethal proficiency makes the master of the gun kata as an adversary not to be taken lightly. This is why it's statistically impossible for Hillary Clinton to lose Michigan. <laughs> now, um, and I just like that the movie is postulating that no matter how rigorously controlled a society is, no matter how airtight you think the rules are, the human factor will eat it up from the inside. There, there has to be that room for that chaos. Um, except, of course, in the realm of the martial arts, which is strictly mathematical. Ah! 